My guest for the day is Eric Rupert. If you have not listened to last week's episode with part one of Eric Rupert's interview, then please do. This part of the interview does not need too much of an introduction. We will go into some personal tragedy and really take a deep dive into what he has learned from all of his experiences in and out of the kitchen. This is the final episode of the second season of the Madisonian Podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Brown. If I could jump back to the ovens of Brittany, um, I remember, and I think this happens to a lot of um, you know chefs early on in their career, I was, I was decorating wedding cakes, and the more I did, the fancier they got. And it was taking more and more time, and I, I my, the, the, bakery manager I was literally decorating a wedding cake and this one was just sort of over the top it was cool but it was over the top and it was taking way too much time and uh he came up behind me while I was doing this and he said hey, Eric and and he was trained in Italy and, and he said Eric um food food is a lot like dog poop the more you stir it the more it stinks and and he didn't use the word poop though and um and that Although it's a terrible um, saying, it, it it sort of stuck with me that for me the best food um, is always food that was created uh, by both the earth and by the talent of the humans that's that are stewarding the earth, um, and then its essence understood by the person cooking it and presented simply. Conversely, there is nothing more disappointing and disheartening and gut-wrenching than food that is um, overwrought, overthought, overstirred, um, overcomposed. You know, it's it stands six inches off your plate, uh, but it's got no soul, it's got no heart. And uh, there's plenty of that out there, there was at the time. Um, and I, th- I think that, you know, with the cooking at L'Etoile, it really was about capturing the essence of, of the ingredients um, and not trying to do too much. And the, the time was just really ripe. Um, Odessa asked me to be her co-chef probably six months after I started. Um, and we were, you know, she's brilliant. Um, and I am, will be forever grateful to her for the opportunities that she afforded me. And, and I worked hard for the restaurant and um, it was, it's, it's very satisfying now, you know, some 30 some years later, um, because, you know, especially around here, there's so much, um, and it gets overused. The, the term farm to table didn't even exist 30, 30 years ago, but you know, cooking from the farmer's market, cooking with local ingredients, cooking seasonally, it's sort of assumed that if you're a decent restaurant, that's just what you do locally. And that was not the case way back when, but it but it was so obvious that that was a better choice back then um, because it was, number one, it was, it was easier. You know, you didn't, it's much easier to put a nice plate of food out to a customer mm-hmm. if your fun if your ingredients are really really good and you know with all due respect to the large food distributors of the world that's not what they were offering you know they 
it just wasn't, you know, the food that was on the vine a day ago was always going to be better than something that was picked, you know, 2,000 miles away and trucked here and, you know, was grown because it shipped well, not because it tasted good. Um, so the cooking part's always been really easy. Um, you know, the, the rigors of, of being in a kitchen, you know, that's a different story. Um, that's just hard work, but it is kind of true. If you love what you do, it doesn't really feel like work. Um, so, you know, most days that's how it presented itself. So how did you get your start at Epic? And uh, Let's see. Well, it, let me back up a, a, a little. So I'm at Les Toiles, um, and uh, my, my uh, girlfriend at, at the time uh, and I went to a, a friend had invited us to a performance that she was in um, by a man named Robert Davidson. It was being held at the university. It was sort of sponsored by the university. They brought him in. And um, he used uh, low-flying uh, trapezes as a dance medium. The performance is called Meister Eckert, and our, our friend was actually in that show. And um, we watched it. We were, I don't I was transported. And, and I know uh, my girlfriend at the time was as well, and we, it got done. And we looked at each other and just said, we, we have to do that. We, we absolutely have to do that. And so um, along with our friend Renee, who was in the show, and our friend Kevin, um, we started Secropia Aerial Dance Company um, back in 1988, I think was the first time we um, did anything with that in the old Turner Hall downtown. Um, and so, you know, with, with great pride, um, I can say that, you know, we started, we started Secropia and it's still to this day. Have you ever seen them? I don't, I don't, I don't think I have. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Well, you need to talk to those yeah, folks yeah. too. Um, cause they're pretty cool and, and what they do so, is extraordinary. So, yeah, no, I'm sure. So, so you founded this aerial dance company. Yeah. Did you have any training? Oh, no, no. You know, that's, that's not going to stop you when you're 26 years old, nor should it. I mean, really, um, no, no. It was it was exciting. It was thrilling. It was fun. It was unique. Um, it also made you really, 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 really strong. So that part oh, was yeah, really I'm cool. Sure. Um, and uh, it was just a a, a wonderful um, experience uh, and, and thing to do. So um, was uh, so I did that while being uh, co chef at L'Etoile and working whatever sixty hours a week there. Yeah. Um, and you know we were we were making some great food. I, I look back fondly. I listened to the interview you did with um, with Odessa, and that <laughs> my son was in the background as we were listening, and she she started. I could tell she was about to talk about a dish, and I said, "I I know which one she's going to talk about." And I was like two words ahead of her the whole time on yeah. the dish with the potatoes and. Um, but she got one little thing wrong, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, and it was, it was so minor. Um, so the, she said that we use beef. And, and truth be told, we did occasionally. Um, but when it was available, um, Cherokee bison would sell us their bison tenderloins. And so it was made with bison tenderloin. And it was insane. Um, it was It was so, so good. So... 
Um, so then, uh, somewhere in there, um, so somewhere in there, um, the, the girlfriend that I've mentioned, she was actually killed in a car accident. And um, so Cecropia, so it kept going, um, but it was very difficult for me to, to keep going. Um, right. and, but before I sort of um, walk away, one of the things that we do is we'd um, host these Sunday morning, uh, we'd invite people in to come and, and sort of get introduced to, to the style of movement and, and um, do some contact improvisation. And it was just a way to open it up to the community a little bit. And um, lo and behold, that's where I met um, my wife. And, um, and actually, um, she brought her daughter, uh, who was two years old at the time. And um, now my daughter, uh, same daughter, uh, is 31 years old. And um, we're happily married and have two other kids. And so that part all worked out. Um, is one of the challenging things about working in a restaurant, especially, especially when you have a family, is that the hours and, you know, people have heard this all the time. They're, you're working when people aren't. You're working a gazillion hours. Um, you know, try as they might, restaurants can't really afford to pay very well. Um, benefits are not typically um, available. And so if you have a family, you've got to figure that, you got to bridge that gap somehow. Um, so I had um, been approached by the Opera House. And well, actually, let me back up. I had thought for a while that I wanted to have my own restaurant. And um, so started casually looking and, and then um, the train depot down on West Washington became available and I decided it was very difficult. I mean, it was really, really difficult because I love being at L'Etoile. Um, but I decided that uh, in order to better support my family, um, I would try to make it on my own and, and hopefully it would be successful. And so we did um, Cafe Kahootek down on West Washington Avenue. Um, it was very, very busy, and it's where I learned a very painful lesson, and that is um, making great food and making money on food are two very different processes. And I had been, um, I don't know, oblivious to the money end of things, and um, that's unfortunate because um, we had a we had a good thing at, at Cafe Kahootek, uh, but it it didn't last. So lots of lots of lessons learned there. Um, while I was there, um, I was approached by uh, somebody that was opening up an extraordinary uh, deli and and pasta uh, emporium on Monroe mm -hmm. Street called um, Atlas Atlas Pasta and Deli, and um, so I, I accepted that opportunity and we opened that. So I. You know, this is like the third thing I've opened in my life. Um, and it was amazing. Uh, this place was floor to ceiling, cheeses and olive oils and vinegars and meats from all over the world. And we had a deli in the back that made really, really, really great food and just learned a ton um, there. And it's it's so common in, in the restaurant business for people to um, uh, kind of go from one, you know, you sort of learn everything you can 
and then move on to the next thing and learn everything you can and move on to the next thing. And um, so Atlas, uh, the folks from the Opera House, which at the time was a, a wine bar on Beatty Street, um, they were going to open up uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, a, a beautiful restaurant. They wanted me to be the chef. Okay, I'll do that. That sounds great. And it was. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, and again, we cooked from the market and we made some great food and had a great team. Um, and somewhere in there, uh, had had a kid um, and then also started a cooking school um, at the Opera House because we were closed on Sundays, but the way that the kitchen was set up, I could actually teach people in our kitchen. And so I got experience um, cooking in front of people and engaging people and teaching people. And I, I just had a passion for it. I'd, I'm trying to get the world to slow down. There's just a million things that are vying for attention and trying to get us to speed up. And I can't think of a better thing to get you to slow down than making food and enjoying food with other people. And so it was a great vehicle to do that. Um, then Sub-Zero Wolf actually came knocking and they just were asked me if I wanted to do some cooking demos. I said, sure, you know, I'll, I'd love to. Went out there and um, it became very clear to me that they had a, the opportunity to make a, a world-class um, uh, training facility um, mm -hmm. with just a little extra effort. So we did that and we, we grew that into an ex just truly a great, um, a great program. And then um, uh, 2008 and 2009 happened, the economy uh, crashed and uh, they shut down that program. And, um, and I needed a job because at this point I've got three kids and a mortgage. And um, so I applied at Epic and much to my amazement got hired. Um, and then about six months later was offered the executive chef job. Did that for about eight years could talk for hours about all the things I've learned, but that you know, it, it, I, I was the 29th person on the, the culinary team uh, when I got hired in 2009, and we have over 200 people on the culinary team now. Um, so it's incredible. Yeah. So, so what's, what's it like? I mean, being in, I mean, it's a huge, like, huge that group of buildings is huge epic itself is huge and so many employees what's it all like uh, sure um well it's it's very different than we were fortunate we we got to visit um other large companies um and and how they approach food service and they're making some really really good food for sure um when you know when everybody's on campus right now it's a little different but when everybody's on campus we feed about eight to ten thousand people a day we do it all from scratch and we change the menus every day um and it's really the changing the menu every day and we don't often repeat things either um that that that's really the kicker um it keeps everybody on their toes keeps everybody challenged it keeps everybody um very fluent in as many different cuisines and styles of food plus we have about seven different venues and the cooks rotate between venues every few months so you're really just working with new people all the time and um you know you you're making you know i don't know i'm trying to make it everything from uh you know a nice fish fry for 400 people to um um you know beautiful indian curries to I don't know, just the food's really extraordinarily good and, and there's, there's not even a, a qualifier because 
we try to make 600 of something as though we're making six of it um, in, in terms of quality. Um, so, you know, it, it, I thought I was fast before I got to Epic, um, but you really have to, you really have to get a lot done um, and, and also be able to work in teams really well because one person can, if you work as a team, you can, you can get it all done. If you try to do it yourself, you're going to get nowhere uh, at that volume. So, yeah, when I started, I think we were feeding maybe a thousand people a day and, you know, now we feed, you know, 8,000 people a day. So, so it's a, it's a whole different animal. And some of our events will, you know, we have 14,000 people um, come through. So it's, it's been extraordinary. It's challenging. Um, at this point in my career, and I've been saying this since I got there, you know, usually chefs, first of all, you don't meet a lot of chefs that are my age. Um, they figure out that it's not a particularly sustainable um, uh, occupation. And so they, they go on to bigger and better things. Um, but to be learning as much as I am even now um, on a daily basis um, from others, because we hire cooks from all over the country and they're extraordinarily talented. Um, and to work as a team it's inspiring. It's what gets me out of bed every day is, is being able to go and learn and to work with others um, at a place that high, has high expectations, um, but also have, provides a tremendous amount of support you know, if you're good at what you do. So I, I'm grateful to Epic, for sure, for the opportunity. Um, a couple of years ago, I, um, my son, my older son, Kellen, um, he was in college. And, you know, I had made um, Nutcrack quite by accident, actually, years ago. Um, yeah, tell us what, what sure. that, yeah, it, that story. Yeah, the, we call it the happy accident. Um, I, so I, I think I mentioned my attention span being akin to a ferret. Um, but I can also do a bunch of things at once. Um, and so I, I literally had like six or seven pots of things going on the stove, and which is fairly common for a cook right and um i was gonna make some candy pecans the way i'd always done it and i i had some they were boiling in simple syrup and that's as much of the recipe as you're gonna get out of me um but um i i i also had uh oh, i had a whole bunch of things going but basically i scooped the what i thought was something else out of the pot and it was it was the um it was the pecans and um i accidentally put them into another vessel into another pot and i knew right away that i screwed you know i really screwed up the pecans um made a huge mess and and i said bad words and there was nobody around so it was not a big deal um and out of disgust i kind of fished them out of that pot and threw them onto a sheet pan and just like i'll just deal with those later when i'm cleaning up and i made another batch of pecans the way i'd always done it because um, i needed them for a salad and so I got to the cleanup part, and again, nobody's around, and I'm, I'm looking at these pecans, and I'm like, huh, those actually look really good. And, you know, chefs are going to eat anything. Like, we'll try a little nibble of something, you know, once to try it. And so I ate one, and I'm like, wow, that's really good. That's really good. And without even really knowing it, I ate almost two pounds of pecans over the next half an hour. Um, and, and chefs are not prone to doing that. They were, you know, like 
when we make something, food's always better when somebody else makes it, right? I mean, it, food always tastes better when somebody else makes it. So, like, when we make food, um, it's, we're not terribly impressed with what we've done. Um, but I knew that they were good. And so the next day, when staff was there, I made them again. I tried to repeat the as best I could. Uh, this time I sprinkled a little salt on them. And people lost their minds. They thought they were, I mean, they were just gobbled up in no time. And they were raving about them. So that year I made them for Christmas gifts um, because nobody needs more stuff, um, but they need good food and, and good experiences. And so I did that for a few years. Um, but in the back of my mind, it was always growing. Like, oh, that's going to be kind of like a, a fun, you know, fun thing to do at some point. Now, mind you, I'd worked my whole career to get to where I was at Epic. That is the, the that is the, the dream job for a chef is is to be the executive chef there, and um, I had no intention of really leaving it. But as time went on, this this sort of nagging like idea of starting a business with Nutcrack just kept growing. And then my son came to me and he said, "Hey, you know, we should really do this." And that's what sort of tipped me into it. And about a month later, I found myself talking to my boss and saying. Um, and, and she had had them many times. I'd given them to her as gifts and had made them while at Epic, you know, for salads or meetings or whatever. And um, she called them, she calls them those infernal nuts. And um, so I, my son came and just said, you know, we should, we should really do this. And that's what tipped me into doing it. And um, so back in, we found the space. I wasn't really looking for a retail space, um, but Lo and behold, one day I saw a for rent sign on, on um, what was Gail and Brocious's uh, shop, you know, over here on Atwood. And um, we got the lease. And uh, about six months later, we, we opened up the shop. I stepped away from my role as executive chef at Epic. I'm still a chef at Epic, but not, I just, not in charge of everything. Uh, but I still work there full time. And, and uh, my son, Kellen, and um, my other son, Colson, periodically as well, and then a team of um, seven other uh, really talented people uh, really do like 98% of the work because I'm I've got this you know uh, uh, full-time job at Epic, um, and the business has been growing, uh, continues to grow even in, in a pandemic, um, not in the ways not in the ways that we had sort of you know imagined nine months ago, um, but I, I'll say that. Um, it's in the, in the grand scheme of things, we've been very fortunate, very blessed. Um, we've had to think of things in ways, we're forced to think of things in ways that we never would have otherwise thought of them. And so we've grown the business in areas that um, we didn't think possible. Um, it's required a lot of creativity and thinking outside the proverbial box. Um, but I'm really, in the end, I'm really grateful um, for it. And I would be, uh, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't share this piece of it. And and this is a hard one to, um, oh, I struggle with how to articulate this. I, um, growing up, uh, I, we didn't, we were not, we didn't go to church. We didn't have any sort of association with any sort of religion. My mother taught us to be respectful of all religions, of course. Um, all my friends, you know, uh, they all went to Blessed Sacrament or, or Jewish. They, you know, 
they, they like all my friends, uh, had some sort of affiliation with some religion, but not, we didn't. It's not a problem. Um, although it did get me kicked out of Boy Scouts, I guess. But, um, well, I had no problem saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I just couldn't in good conscience say under God because that just wasn't a thing for me. So I just skipped that part and they figured that out. And they was like, well, you got to say that. And I'm like, well, I can't really say it. And so they kicked me out. But anyways, um, it, it dawned on me about two and a half years ago as I started to really think in earnest about doing this business. It, it I was I was walking my dog and it occurred to me that I, I didn't know anything about faith. I'd like, I, I mean, I generally, you know, I kind of believe what goes around comes around. If you, you know, if you try to be a good person that, you know, that, you know, things will be okay. I just had no concept of faith whatsoever. And for some reason, um, I, I, I knew I needed to learn about faith. And so this whole Nutcrack project um, is really about, for me, is about faith. Is about, you know, I always thought faith growing up was kind of, I don't know, I didn't think too hard about it, but um, I just didn't get it. it it's this idea of God or, you know, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm for me, it's about letting go, because um, heavens knows I, I can I can fixate on a problem and grind my teeth and just you know earn. And that's, I spent a whole career doing that. And what this has taught me is that um, if you work hard, and we do, I mean we work really hard here, um, but put your best foot forward and have a general understanding that if you you know if you treat people well and you you work hard. Um, it'll work out. It, it, it really will. It doesn't mean there aren't problems or issues or challenges along the way. But what has really taught me is that every problem that, that pops up, and they do every day, um, it's an opportunity to learn. It's not, it's not um, whereas before, it, when problems would come up, and again, they do a lot, um, they were annoyances. They were just, oh, okay, another thing we got to do. And now, um, for some reason, I can look at them as opportunities to grow. I can look at them as challenges that we can all learn from. And it's become part of the culture of our business. And again, it's not for lack of effort. Um, it's not a passive process at all. Um, but I will say, for me, and I, I don't know if this is how it works universally, but my experience has been that the greater the challenge, and, and again, we, you know, we're in the middle of one, but um, you know, we've had some really big challenges where normally I would have just like forced some sort of resolution. I just sort of stepped back and go, you know what? It's going to be okay. I'm not sure what, is the, what, you know, what the next day or two is going to look like, but it's going to be okay. The harder the challenge and um, the harder it is for me to let go, but if I do, the greater the reward is, at least so far. And immediately when, when you know, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, we had, um, a lot of them are just, you know, like they're, they're pretty small little things, but, um, you know, we'll, let's say, you know, sales in a month are just not where we need them to be. And 
you know, we're okay, how are we going to make rent? How are we going to make payroll? Just like every other small business. And, um, and I'm like, you know what, you guys, it's going to be okay. I don't know how, but it's going to be okay. And the very next day, we get an order for, you know, a pallet of, you know, we get a $10,000 order. It doesn't always, it doesn't always come in that big of a, of a um, uh, sale, but every single time. So I guess this is my, my lesson about learning about faith um, and how to dovetail that with hard work. And were you able to keep that when a global pandemic happened? And with um, how I'll, I'll put it this way, I have to remind myself um, a lot more regularly <laughs> to let go um, and to, to just back up. And um, I think more than anything, it allows us as a team to focus on what's most important. Uh, people's health is most important. Um, and it allows us to build the culture of the business. I think, you know, I'm lucky because the people that, that work at Epic are extraordinarily talented and committed to, to being here and making it successful. Um, and honestly, it can't rely on me that much because I'm just, I'm not here most of the time. I'm, I'm at my, my job. Um, and by the time I do get here, at, you know, two or three in the afternoon, most of the production and packaging is done for the day. You know, most most everybody's work's done for the day. So um, it has brought us together as a team, uh, which I think is really important. It's built the culture of the business, which um, I think is healthy and vital and something I certainly need. But I think it nourishes people beyond just a paycheck. They're not here just for a paycheck. Um, they feel like they've got the ability to positively affect um, change. And, you know, the more we figure out together as we navigate through this pandemic um i think the more we collectively see that um first of all we're very fortunate and we're also both that you know to be supported by uh as a business but also to have the internal support amongst ourselves um, i think is has been very apparent and um that you know because I've got, don't get me wrong, I've got people, you know, Sam and Jess are here. And um, it's not like the business operates solely on faith um, or trust at all. Um, it, it, it operates on a lot of structure, a lot of planning, a lot of intelligence, a lot of strategy, a lot of hard conversations. Um, and, and, it, and because they are so good at what they do, and the, the folks in the production kitchen are so good at what they do, we're able to put out a great product, which, you know, immodestly, Nutcrack is really, really extraordinarily delicious and good for you. Um, we're able to put that out there with confidence and people just love it. Um, they, you know, the, the biggest challenge Nutcrack has is getting the world to try it. Once they try it, they're good. You know, they know what it is and they might not need it right then, but when they do need something delicious and nutritious and you know, they know nutcracks there and so i don't know if i answered your question but it, you definitely did it's where we, you did. it's where we find ourselves last question where do you attribute your success with everything to where 
Um, where where does it go? I mean, luck, skill, faith. Oh gosh. Where do you attribute it? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm grateful to you for asking that question because in thinking about um, you know talking with you today, I I did want to um, at the risk of sounding like the old guy that's been you know in the business for forty some years. Um, I think it's, but I I have I have you know I have kids um, and. I'm, I was very, very fortunate to find something that I was naturally good at and that I loved. And, um, and it, the way it looks from where I am now, but I think it looked that way along the way too, was if you're really lucky enough to find that thing, whatever it is, life will offer up opportunities to, to use it to grow. It doesn't have to even be your occupation necessarily. Um, but it's, it's imperative that you find something that you love to do and as corny as it sounds, do it. And, um, that, that's really what it comes down to. I feel very fortunate that I love food and that I live where I live and I'm surrounded by the people I'm surrounded by. And not just at Nutcrack, but just through my whole career. I've been surrounded by people that, you know, that, that love food and we have great food here. Um, so I think it's about finding that thing. Um, I'll use my youngest son, Colson, as an example. He's a junior in high school. And for the last five years, um, five years ago, he started making knives. He's a blacksmith. And and he just absolutely loves it. I don't know that he's going to do it as a career, but he loves doing it. And through doing that, he is a very fine young man. Um, my son, Kellen, you know, he's here. He's integral part of the business. I cannot tell you how much joy it brings me to be able to work with him. Um, he has imprinted who we are as a business, both out in the world, but also internally. Um, because he loves being a part of who we are. So I think it's just about, if you're really lucky, you, you find something you love to do. I don't care what it is. Um, and then you're able to do it. And, and oftentimes life just offers up opportunities to do that. Again, not necessarily as a career, but as something that brings you joy and brings you satisfaction and, um, and, and guides you and challenges you and rewards you and all those things. So I, I would wish that for anybody. Um, honestly, that's for me, it seems that simple. And I, I feel like it sounds corny, but I feel like the luckiest guy when it comes to my career. I, I, I've just been very, very blessed, very fortunate. Um, doesn't mean I didn't work super hard. Um, but you know, I, but I also enjoyed it, and um, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's next. Uh, yeah. You know, I jokingly told my kids that, you know, I would love to be sitting on a, a porch somewhere up on Washington Island, you know, listening to the waves crashing and talking to my grandkids and how this, you know, at, at the age of fifty-five, uh, sort of at the peak of his career, uh, started a new business selling one thing, selling candied pecans, and, you know, and it worked out. 
So uh, that that'll be a good day. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I guess pleasure. is there is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or? Uh, thanks for tagging along all my rambling um, and just making it up as I go. Uh, but I am grateful to you for doing this. Congratulations. I, I think it's, um, I, I'm sure you get this all the time, but it's very impressive um, well, thank for you. anybody, but uh, especially for somebody um, who's, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know you, but I was telling somebody today I was going to do this. And I said, he's just got to be an old soul. There's no way that you listen to these podcasts. These are not normal questions. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by Ben Brown, covered editing, producing, and booking also by Ben Brown. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, or you have a friend that would like to be on the show, or someone who you think would be interesting, please email me at benjaminbrownieproductions at gmail.com. You can also email me feedback or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We greatly appreciate every review that comes to us and all feedback that comes to us because it is such a joy hearing from our listeners. The best way to support us is by buying our merch or supporting us on Patreon with a monthly monthly payment of $3 that gives you benefits like 15% off of all of our merchandise. We love you listeners, so we would greatly appreciate it in return if you could tell your friends about this podcast. We appreciate every listener that comes and all the feedback that we receive. I put in so much work every week to produce, book, and record. So this is all that I ask in return. I hope you have enjoyed the second season of the Madisonian Podcast, and we greatly appreciate if you would keep your eyes out for the next season of the Madisonian Podcast with incredible content and incredible interviews and incredible Madisonians. That will be available the first Monday of November. Goodbye.